Hey everybody, welcome back to Explain Like I'm Fire, the podcast where we take the questions you always wanted to ask and talk about them in a way that's easy to understand. We are your hosts, I'm Tim. And I'm Kevin. So Kevin, today we're talking about nuclear power. And the first question is, how do countries get rid of their nuclear warheads when they decide they no longer want them or need them? Well, what they do is they basically take them apart and mix all that plutonium with a ceramic forming something called a fuel pellet. And these pellets are then actually shipped to the correct type of nuclear reactor and basically used as nuclear fuel. You know, in fact, a lot of Soviet and American warheads that were dismantled due to treaties ended up as fuel in Canadian nuclear reactors as the two major powers didn't trust each other. It is interesting how both bitter enemies trusted Canada. Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's right. A lot of dismantled Soviet warheads ended up in U.S. reactors, and a lot of dismantled U.S. warheads end up in Japanese reactors too. So how are nuclear weapons tests that are done underground conducted without destroying all the land around them or the facilities in which they are conducted? Oh, so you're talking about underground nuclear tests. What they are is they're essentially a bomb in a very, very deep hole or mine shaft. And when it goes boom, a portion of the surrounding ground is vaporized. Uh, and a lot more is what they call superheated. So if the hole is deep enough, and very well it should be, as we've done this sort of thing for a while now, all the basically all the radioactivity and the blast is contained underground. So it's kind of like having a very, very, very tiny balloon pop in your hands, if you can imagine that. So, you know, the, mo- the noise is muffled, uh, the rubber doesn't go anywhere, and everything is cool. I see. Now, there are two nuclear disasters which people often reference and compare and contrast. And my question is, how come Hiroshima today as a city has a population of over a million people, I believe, and it isn't a complete dead city? In comparison, a city like Chernobyl still has a 30-kilometer exclusion zone. Oh, really, really great question. So the two instances, the two examples are actually very different. Uh, That's because Hiroshima was destroyed by a nuclear blast, while Chernobyl wasn't actually destroyed at all, but it was irradiated by a complete nuclear power meltdown. Now, bombs are designed to use up as much of the radioactive material as possible in, you know, a split second. Any less would be, you know, a waste of destructive power. So while Hiroshima was certainly more physically destructive, the destruction was caused by a rather small sphere of nuclear material. You know, there simply isn't enough of it in a bomb to contaminate as much of the area as when you have a whole power plant. On the other hand, power plants are designed to use up fuel over long periods of time. And don't take it the wrong way, it's still really bad. I'm just speaking in terms of, you know, comparing it to Chernobyl. Okay, so perhaps we can ELI-5 what happened at Chernobyl then. Yes, so Chernobyl was a nuclear power station, and it had tons of radioactive material on site. And when it lost containment, it was immense amounts of radiation pouring out of it. And it did contaminate a very large area despite not having much physical destruction. So how about we put some numbers against it? Uh, The Chernobyl reactor contained about 180 tons of nuclear fuel consisting of 2% or 3,600 kilograms of total uranium, 
while the amount of nuclear fuel released is estimated at 7 tons, uh, corresponding to about 200 kilograms of uranium. You know, fission products increase the longer the fuel is used. Okay, I got it. So 3,600 kilograms of uranium, uh, of which 200 kilograms underwent fission. How about the Hiroshima bomb? Now, the Hiroshima bomb only contained about 25 kilograms of uranium, and about one kilogram of that underwent nuclear fission. So around, all, 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 about all around more than 200 times smaller. Wow, that does give a sense of, you know, the scale difference. Now, they said at Chernobyl, the water made it all much worse. And there's something people described as the elephant's foot. What is that? You know, it sounds really, really dangerous. Very dangerous indeed. It's quite difficult to actually express in words just how radioactive and dangerous the elephant's foot was or is. In some circles, it's known as the Medusa Stone, uh, because if you've seen it with your own eyes, well, you're basically a dead man. Uh, one second of exposure guarantees basically deadly cancer across your entire body within five years, and 10 seconds reduces that to one year. I get the picture. Uh, but in this story, there were also some heroes. Yes, indeed. Uh, three men saved the world on that day, despite knowing that it almost meant certain death. Uh, Valery Bespalov and Alexei Anadenko, who were engineers from the plant, and Boris Baranov, who worked as a technician, volunteered to dive down and open a release valve. They swam through waters that the radiation had boiled into hydrogen peroxide in order to do this. You know, every man, woman, and child on the planet probably owed their lives to these men. So sometimes you hear that cockroaches are resistant to nuclear radiation. How would this be the case if their bodies have DNA just like ours? Oh, so it's actually a little bit of a myth that cockroaches are especially resistant to radiation. While they are more resistant than humans, studies show that susceptibility to radiation scales with size, and that the most resistant is you know, probably the tiny fruit fly. Um, radiation is only a problem if you're growing, since DNA is kind of like a blueprint, and it's not a problem for the fully grown cockroach, uh, cockroach, but still a problem for the species, as making new ones obviously requires the blueprints. Now, as humans, we lack a shell, so we cover ourselves with you know this kind of disposable skin and hair, which gradually falls and flakes off. Uh, this means we need to be constantly growing new skin and hair to keep all of our insides in, right? So our bodies are constantly referencing the blueprints, and we'll start building whatever mess they see on the coffee stains. Uh, this leads to random mutations, which would, which could theoretically result in new superhumans, but you know, mostly results in very painful death. Got it. Now, when you see an explosion in the movies, you typically see the same type of shape uh, from a nuclear explosion. Why is this? And um, one further detail is I've noticed that footage of nuclear explosions often come with these white vertical stripes falling to the ground. Can you explain that as well? Sure. What you're referencing is often called the mushroom cloud. Uh, and it's a, yes, it is a pretty distinctive mushroom-shaped uh, cloud of debris, smoke, and usually condensed water vapor resulting from such a large explosion. The effect is most commonly associated with a nuclear explosion, but actually any sufficiently energetic detonation or uh, deflagration will produce the same effect. So the other thing you're talking about, I believe, are smoke trails from smoke rockets. Uh, before nuclear tests, 
they would sometimes fire smoke rockets up into the air near the blast location, which would allow them to monitor the blast's shockwave by basically watching uh, how the smoke trails moved in response to it. Ah, so they're for testing purposes. That's very interesting. Did you learn something new? If you did, send us an email. We are at ELI5thepodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you, especially when you've got suggestions for us. And as always, thank you to the community at r slash explain like I'm five. We will see you all next week. <laughs>